You'll never take the great art masterpieces of Europe for granted when you know what people had to do to protect them during World War II. The Mona Lisa was moved on five separate occasions during the war. In a minute, Robert Edsel reminds us of the men and women who risked their lives to safeguard so many of the world's most important artistic and cultural treasures. Fred Plotkin's back with us to expand our search and maybe our waistlines for the culinary highlights in four of Italy's lesser appreciated regions. They show off their wine to its best advantage by creating food to go with the wine rather than the other way around. While growing up on a farm in Belgium, Nina Derricks remembers that lunch was the main meal of the day. Usually, they had soup. Often pigeon soup, because Belgians particularly like pigeon racing, and all the losers went into the soup. The comfort foods of Belgium, the treats of back road Italy, and the debt we owe to saving the art we love. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Italy has long been home to a magnificent variety of great foods and drinks, the kind that gets you in touch with the season and the lands around you. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, Fred Plotkin tips us off on less-traveled places in Italy where you can even indulge in some of the same kinds of treats the early Romans enjoyed or the cheese that brought Michelangelo down from his scaffolding for a lunch break. And friends from Belgium tell us about the comfort foods of their youth. We'll see how tasty the real home of French fries can get and how far our taste buds have come over the years. Let's open the hour with a Veterans Day tribute to the men and women who protected the great art of Europe from being plundered or destroyed during the Second World War. Earlier this year in Chicago, the last of the original group of Allied troops known as the Monuments Men, Richard Baranchik, died at age 98. But the work at finding and repatriating missing treasures lives on. Robert Edsel started a foundation to recognize and continue their work. He joins us now to look at some of the places we can visit to honor their efforts. Robert, when you think about the Louvre Museum, what was it like before the Nazis took Paris, and then what was it like a, a couple years into the, uh, into the occupation? Well, the Louvre got several million objects in it today. At the time, uh, it was four or 500,000 objects. But, you know, imagine uh, 1939 going to visit the Louvre or any of the major museums throughout Europe, you could have rolled a bowling ball down the Grand Gallery of the Louvre and you would have hit nothing other than the empty frames leaning up against the wall because the works of art, the paintings, the sculpture, uh, coins, all the things in the collection had been evacuated to area chateau, many of which were moved around on multiple occasions. The Mona Lisa was moved on five separate occasions during the war, trying to keep it out of harm's way, the initial concern being bombing and the fires that would follow, and then later, of course, theft by Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. So just from a practical point of view, all of these precious canvases, and if you've walked on the the Grand Gallery, it's like a a hike, uh, you know, countless paintings. They left the frames. Did they just um, knife out the the canvases, or did they take them apart very carefully, or what? No, they took them apart. They had about, I mean, it's really extraordinary. I don't think it could be done today. They evacuated the Louvre in a period of 10 days. The local citizens uh, volunteered, as took place in Italy and other countries, to help the curators there because they just needed manpower, building crates, finding vehicles, uh, fuel, etc. The frames they didn't take, not because they weren't valuable, they're hugely valuable, but they occupied more space in the crates. So the focus was on the actual canvases or panels taken out of their frames, uh, packed in these crates, loaded up on the trucks, and then moved to areas where some of these things, very, very large, could be fit in. In the case of, say, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, the great painting by Rembrandt, Night Watch, a painting that measures uh, 
maybe 10 feet tall by 18 feet across, is rolled up like a carpet because there was no way to move the thing to a place of safekeeping without rolling the canvas. Now, I understand in the Louvre, for instance, there's actually, if you knew where to look, on the back of canvases, there'd be swastikas indicating that these were taken by Germans or wanted by Germans, or or there's symbols on the paintings today that show which ones were were brought back. What can you look for physically as a sort of memory of those difficult times? Well, and, uh, you know, without shamelessly plugging books, you in many cases have to find the books that talk about what's on the back because you can't take the painting off the wall. Um, that would probably get any of our visitors more attention than they'd ever want to have on one of these trips. Yeah, okay. But uh, we do know that in the case at the Louvre, on the back of Vermeer's astronomer, one of two Vermeers stolen by Hitler and the Nazis, there's a uh, eagle swastika uh, from the inventory. Um, there's an inventory number on the back of Leonardo da Vinci's Lady with an Ermine at the Charter Rescue Museum in Krakow, Poland. Um, we located three paintings that were at the uh, SMU Meadows Museum that had the uh, Nazi inventory codes stamped on the back of those paintings. It appears they were properly restituted, but many of the paintings that were stolen by the Nazis on the back, they put these inventory code numbers. In the case of the Rothschilds, you might see an R1171, which would mean the 1,171st item stolen from the Rothschild family, and there were inventory codes for each of the major families from whom these things were stolen. So it's an incredible undertaking, and it just goes to show while a war's going on, the amount of diverted attention and manpower from fighting combat that was directed towards this looting operation. Reading through monuments meant that struck me many times. How much interest there was in art when people are bombing entire cities and untold thousands of people are being killed. Still, you had this parallel scramble going on for art. Was art used as, as rewards for military heroism or for collaborators? Well, art was the kind of the weapon of propaganda by Hitler, trying to project to the German people this uh, vision of what he saw as the master race. But it was also a, a major source of uh, conferring attention on uh, rewards for Nazi generals, rewards to Hitler. Early on in Hitler's leadership, many of the industrial leaders were encouraged to uh, use funds to buy works of art that they knew Hitler or Goering or other Nazi party leaders wanted to have in their collections. So it's a major source of currency hmm. and a tremendous distraction during the war. I mean, you have Goering back to Paris making 22 separate visits to the Jeux de Pomme Museum where Rose Vallon worked secretly underneath their nose uh, in as much as she understand German without their knowledge to look at works of art that he wanted to steal for his own collection or for the Führer's collection this all taking place while he's in charge of knocking England out of the war. It's really extraordinary. Wouldn't the works of art in the Jeux de Pomme have been what we call the degenerate art that Hitler didn't like? Well, many of the works were degenerate paintings by uh, Picasso, by uh, Van Gogh, Monet, and others that the Nazis were removing from their own museums and trading and using uh, sales proceeds to acquire works of art that they valued, some, in many cases the old master pictures. Of course, some of these degenerate works were ultimately destroyed, but the works that float through Jeux de Pomme were whatever the great uh, French collectors, many of whom were Jews, some of whom were dealers, uh, the mm -hmm. dealer collectors, had collected. And so it didn't just involve uh, works of, say, the Western world, but some of the great tapestries of the world, some of the great Islamic works of the world, anything that was of value, that was a prized item for collecting, so many of these great collectors, 
uh, acquired them with very discriminating taste. And of course, it's one of the many paradoxes of this story that the Nazis would consider Jews subhuman and yet prize and respect their taste for what was acquired so much that they would try to be confiscating the things that they had in their own collections. Or maybe just be pragmatic and say, well, it's not to my taste or my ideology, but it's worth a lot, and I'll take this degenerate piece of art here and this Jewish piece of art there and sell it and swap it for something that fits my style. Is that true? I think that's true, and it's one of the reasons why I am so confident that so many of the things that mm-hmm. are missing uh, will someday surface, and it's why we try and get the word out to people that are have any concern or question about something that maybe uh, was brought home after the war or they acquired that they don't know where the thing was during World War II, contact the Monuments Men Foundation and send us a photograph and let us be of assistance. Robert M. Edsel is reminding us about the people who rescued Europe's greatest works of art and historical treasures from being looted or destroyed during World War II. He's with us in a previously unaired portion of our conversations with him on Travel with Rick Steves. Robert is the founder and chair of the Monuments Men and Women Foundation, originally called the Monuments Men Foundation for the Preservation of Art. He's written a number of books on the topic, including The Monuments Men, which George Clooney adapted into a movie in 2014. There's also a special exhibit about their work at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. You'll find more at robertedsel.com. Robert, I would imagine you enjoy traveling Europe and, and just some sightseeing. Just for independent travelers that want to splice in a little bit of this Monuments Men history in their European travels, are there stops that are of particular interest uh, in in this topic? Well, Rick, uh, there are so many great places in Europe. Of course, Paris with the Louvre, uh, the Jeux de Pont Museum, which uh, everyone that walks through the Place de la Concorde walk by without knowing its pivotal role during the war. Berchtesgarden is a fantastically interesting place. It's horrific in some senses, the heart of Adolf Hitler's existence there in the Austrian Alps. Uh, It's beautiful up on top of Eagle's Nest, and you can walk through a remarkably well-designed visitor center to understand why that part of Austria was so important to Hitler. There are smaller places along the way, a cemetery outside Maastricht where one of the monuments officers Uh, is buried, a fellow named Walter Hutchhausen, one of two monuments officers killed during combat protecting works of art. The Castle of Neuschwanstein, another place that Harry Etlinger and the monuments men were, where some 20,000 paintings stolen from the French collectors were found as a result of the secret information Rose Vallant had gathered. People go to the Castle of Neuschwanstein and everything looks pretty hunky-dory and and Mm -hmm. Disney-esque, but it was a, a very, very different scene years ago Uh, really one of the key storage facilities. And we have many photographs from that experience in my first book, Rescuing Da Vinci. Uh, And you won't find it in the guidebooks there. Surprisingly, when you go today, you will not know about this part of uh, the role that that castle played during World War II. When you enjoy the art treasures of Europe today, let's close by just having you share which spot you're most moved and thankful for the work of, of these monuments men. For me, it's not just a specific work of art. I mean, I certainly love to see that great painting by Leonardo da Vinci, the Chartoreski lady with an ermine in uh, Krakow out of a personal affection and Leonardo's great brilliance. But when I think about these monuments officers and what they went through just surviving the war, surviving combat, for me, when I think about places such as Munich that had the Fuhrerbau and uh, one of the Nazi party headquarters that stored so many of these works of art, To me, it's a remarkable achievement to think that these monuments officers stayed in Europe 
and worked in what was the Nazi Party headquarters and Hitler's own uh, office there in Koenigsplatz, gathering these works of art and staying there, trying to sort out where they came from. And the irony, working in these uh, the headquarters of evil during the war in Munich with all these works of art trying to get them back. It's an incredibly heroic effort. It's an honor for me to represent them today through the work of the Monuments Men Foundation. Robert Edsel, I'm really thankful for the work that you do to keep the mission of the Monuments Men alive and share it with, uh, with our public. Uh, Robert Edsel, best wishes with your work, and, and thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Rick. You'll find a roster of people from many nations who helped protect the art treasures of Europe during the Second World War, plus a list of those who continue their work today, including the U.S. Army's Monuments Officers Training Program. It's on the website for the Monuments Men and Women Foundation at monumentsmenandwomenfnd.org. We also have links to their work and to Robert Edsel's earlier appearances with us at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll hear how the hearty comfort foods of Belgium may have changed a bit over the years. But first, Fred Plotkin helps us search the overlooked corners of Italy for its homegrown culinary traditions. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Italy's my favorite country. I simply love everything about eating in Italy. And every region, practically every town, boasts its own culinary specialties. For years, I've admired a book called Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. It was a definitive brick of a guide to Italy's regional foods and restaurants compiled and updated by Fred Plotkin. Ever since he was a college student, Fred has spent substantial time every year getting acquainted with the intricacies of Italy and revealing them to the world. We became friends from Fred's appearances on Travel with Rick Steves, so it was only natural for us to co-author a sequel to Fred's classic guide. The recipe was simple. Two parts Fred's gourmet expertise, two parts my own easy-access approach to eating in Italy, seasoned with an appreciation for how the soul of Italy starts in the kitchen. We've invited Fred in for a closer look at four regions of Italy that have been underappreciated by most travelers and the Epicurean pleasures they offer. Fred, welcome back. My pleasure to be with you. I just think this partnership has been really fun because you just live and breathe Italian culture and you're an opera aficionado and you speak the language and I can barely pronounce the names of the dishes on the menu. In fact, I can't pronounce a lot of them. But together, we can make fine Italian cuisine accessible to our travelers. And for me, that is really, really a mission worth embracing. I agree. We could have called our book, I'll Have What He's Having. (laughs) You know, I'll have what you're having if I'm ever in a restaurant with you, that's for sure. Hey, Fred, our book has three sections, the the basics, of course, finding a good restaurant and a course-by-course coverage of the food. In the appendix, I had so much fun, we listed our favorite restaurants, and it's called Fred's Favorite 50 and Rick's Favorite 50. And the core of the book is a region-by-region rundown covering Italy from the the entire boot, from knee to toe, all 20 regions. And, you know, we always seem to talk about, or people in travel and tour guides, you know, talk about the famous places where everybody goes. But you're really uh, into the less famous regions that are less visited and often underappreciated. Let's talk about a few of those in this uh, discussion here. Yes, because the point is the places that are less visited are less spoiled. 
They maintain yeah. their character. So, and, and that's why I think it's worth the trouble to get out there and to remember it's not just a, how many famous sites are on your bucket list. It's, it's how many regions can you, you just really become a temporary local in. Let's start off with Sardinia. This is, uh, you know, there's the two big islands there between France and Italy and the Mediterranean, Corsica, that's French, and Sardinia. Sicily's another island, but Sicily's kind of just a, a stone's throw away from the mainland. Sardinia's really more on its own, isn't it? It's more isolated. The Italian word for island is isola, I-S-O-L-A, and it's the same root as isolation. In other words, it's really off on its own. And what's particular among many things about Sardinia, they have what's called a blue zone, and this is one of the places in the world where people live the longest. And it's a combination of what they eat, how they live, the quality of life, the clean air, and what people don't know about Sardinia, they assume that it's a seafood place. And it is because it's an island. However, it's one of the biggest meat-eating regions of Italy, and there are two reasons for that. One is that malaria surrounded the coast until 1950. So people lived inland to stay away from malaria. But number two, conquerors attempted to come to the island and take over Sardinia. So people lived inland in these little dwellings called Nuragi, which are these ancient stone dwellings. And they lived with their sheep. So therefore, the sheep's milk cheeses of Sardinia are just, to me, the best I know anywhere in the world. And there are great ones in Spain and elsewhere in Italy. These are just the best by a long shot. And there are shops where they it's nothing but sheep's milk cheese. It's phenomenal. So pecorino is the word for sheep's cheese. Is that right? Yes. And in fact, people should know that most of the pecorino produced in Tuscany, which is famous, the people came from Sardinia to produce it in Tuscany. Ah. The Sardinians are the experts on this. So when we think of Sardinia, we're thinking of pastoral, sheep-centric communities, uh, rural communities, and also, I suppose, their heritage, because there's a lot of honey and almonds and nuts. That would be like in Sicily, the Arabic heritage, Food that right? travels. No, not so much Arabic, Phoenician, but food that travels, because the shepherd could not take fresh bread, so he takes something called pane fratao or pane carasau. This is sort of a crisp bread like you see in Scandinavia or the American West where bread has to last. And the shepherds would then use oil or water or tomato sauce out in the countryside, grate on pecorino and perhaps a fried egg. And that's a traditional shepherd's meal. And you you can find it in restaurants in the towns. But I've eaten this surrounded by sheep out in Sardinia. Sardinia, by the way, has fantastic wines. People don't know this. There's a red called Canonau, which they think is part of the secret of long life, that there's something particular in this red wine that is very health-giving. Vermentino is the white. And you mentioned the honey. There's something called Abamele, which is, it's like aged honey that they use as medicine. I learned from us that when you're talking about the wines, in the book, you've included Vino de Taglio, wine for cutting. It's so rough and heavy. I guess that's its nickname. Yes. In other words, when a wine gives body. So, for example, southern Italy, Sicily, parts of the south, Sardinia, produce wines that in the past were very heavy because that's what they had. They would be shipped north to places like um, Piemonte, Lombardy, where the wines were lighter to give a little more substance, not so much Piemonte, but more Lombardy, okay. to give substance and also Emilia Romagna. 
Fred Plotkin's on the line from his home in Manhattan as we celebrate the culinary pleasures in the lesser-visited parts of Italy on Travel with Rick Steves. Fred co-authored Rick Steves' Italy for Food Lovers with me. It updates his classic Italy for the Gourmet Traveler for each of Italy's 20 regions. And it includes our 100 favorite restaurant recommendations all across the country. There's more at ricksteves.com radio. Fred, let's travel now to the region north of Venice that snuggles right up there in the corner uh, next to Austria and Slovenia with the Dolomites on the top and the beaches on the south. What's that? It's Friuli Venezia Giulia. And to me, this is the great undiscovered region. It's been discovered a bit about 25 years ago now. I wrote a book of the food of the region called La Terra Fortunata, The Fortunate Land, which was an ironic title because the region has known war. It was one of the centers of World War I. It suffered in World War II. Hemingway was injured there. Hemingway loved this region. There have been massive earthquakes. There have been all Mm -hmm. kinds of devastation, invasions from Austria, invasions by Attila the Hun even, Mm. destroying Roman civilizations. And yet, it is one of the most remarkable food places I know in the world. And the reason for that is, It uses more spices than any other Italian region. Most Italian food is herbal with some spices, but in Friuli Venezia Giulia, spices enter everything, which doesn't mean that it's spicy and hot. But for example, you could take a piece of veal or pork and use nutmeg in it that gives a very unusual flavor. But then the Friulians, more than anyone else I know in the world, know how to match wines with foods. You don't match it with the protein, in other words, fish or chicken or beef. You match it with the flavoring. So nutmeg goes with Cabernet Franc. And there are so many grape varieties in this region of world-class wines that, for example, they make a Sauvignon Blanc that's different from most. And it goes beautifully with rock shrimp, with eggs, with white asparagus. They know everything. My knowledge of food pairing with wine came primarily from this region. My nose, my palate were developed there. And people who are very serious about learning this stuff really need to go and spend time in Friuli Venezia Giulia, which, as you said, it's tiny. It has the Adriatic, so fantastic fish. It has the plains for polenta. It has prosciutto di San Daniele, the only rival to Parma. It has the Alps with amazing berries and game and all kinds of flavors in this little region, plus amazing wine. There's no other word for it but amazing wine. Fred, you talked about its war heritage, as many people have rampaged through there from Attila's time all the way up to the Nazis. Uh, does that, uh, in peaceful times, that means it's a crossroads and that brings in uh, more flavors. Uh, you've got the Austrian and the Slavic influence. Does that have anything to do with the cuisine and the, the spiciness of it relative to it other parts does, of It does, because the spice trade, spices were used not only for food flavoring, but preservation of food mm-hmm. and as for medicinal purposes. So the people of the region came to use spices, also herbs, but primarily spices, as medicine. Also, Fred, it's the home of uh, Trieste, which was the uh, the Habsburg port on the Mediterranean. And uh, I would imagine it leaves a little bit of Habsburg heritage, Austrian heritage, like the coffee culture or the, the cakes and pastries. I agree with you mostly. I would only argue that Austria got coffee culture from Italy rather than the other ah, way around, and, and from Turkey. There and I go. love Austria. I spent a lot of time in Vienna. But in learning about Friuli Venezia Giulia, I went to cooking school in Vienna. 
to understand the relationship. Huh. Trieste was the port for the Austrian Empire from 1361 to 1918. So that is a huge amount of history. And the hams, the Prague ham, Prague being part of the Austrian Empire, was made in Trieste. The Romans brought pork to Trieste. They founded Trieste. And from there, it spread north and east. So a lot of the pork products that we see in the German-speaking countries and the Slavic countries came from Trieste. The wood around Trieste is used to make many of the violins and musical instruments, but also furniture that you see in Vienna. Fred Plotkin's our guide to eating off the beaten path in Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Fred co-authored the Rick Steves Italy for Food Lovers book to update Italy's regionally-based cuisines and attractions. It features photos of what we're talking about and glossaries with the Italian terms that let you enjoy them as well. Fred has a presence on Facebook. There's more at ricksteves.com slash radio. Fred, you make me want to travel to Friuli, Venezia, Giulia, and I really love the description you have in our book about the characteristic Osteria. Tell us just very briefly before we travel on the experience you'll have when you go into one of these traditional little salt-of-the-earth restaurants in Osteria. They put a branch outside to let you know that they're serving. And it's often done when the wine is new, and they will make dishes that are rustic but from right there that match with the wine of the place. So they show off their wine to its best advantage by creating food to go with the wine rather than the other way around. All right, let's travel south. Now, everybody goes to Tuscany, and everybody goes to Umbria, and everybody goes to Rome. If you were to go from that region to the east until you hit the Adriatic coastline, that region's called Le Marquet. Like in English, that would be the marches. What's the heritage of that? This is a region that's one-third mountain, one-third plain, and one-third coast. You don't get there easily. You have to intend to go there. So it means that it's been hidden away, but it was under the Roman Empire for a very long time and supplied the salt to Rome, supplied a lot of the food products to Rome. And so therefore, Romans were very demanding of quality. Amazing pasta comes from this region, beautiful wines, salt, fish, everything the Romans wanted to consume, they found at high levels of quality in the market. And also when you go inland, you've got a lot of uh, lamb, you've got a spreadable smoked salami. Tauscolo is Italy's third salami. prosciutto, right? Some very nice prosciutto. From Carpegna, and, but maybe the signature dish is brodetto, which is a fish stew. It's often called a seafood stew. It's really a fish stew. North of Ancona, the capital, it has 13 fishes. South of Ancona, it has nine fishes. Wow. Now, for our last stop on our offbeat, underappreciated, less touristy look at eating in our travels through Italy, Fred, take us to Lombardy. This is the region uh, famous for Milano. As you write in our book, there's four horizontal bands. you got the Po River, which is fertile fields. you got an industrial plain south of Milan. You've got the Lake District, which is very romantic, and people love that. And then you got the Alps. I was hiking around Mount Blanc, and I had one night in Italy. We had a beautiful dinner in the Italian town up in the north in the Valley of Asta. Tell us about the cuisine in Lombard. Well, the Alps in Lombardy are called the Valtellina. And many people think the greatest current red wines in all of Italy are produced in the Valtellina, not in Tuscany, not in Piedmont, but the Valtellina. Most people acknowledge that the best sparkling wine comes from the west coast of Lake Garda, which is the Lombardy side. 
the rice cultivation means that you have magnificent risotto throughout the region. But to me, the symbol of Lombardy is the cow. No region produces more varieties of cow's milk cheese than does Lombardy at an incredibly high quality. I think my favorite cheese is Taleggio, which is a creamy cheese from near Bergamo. But Parmigiano is from there, Gorgonzola, Stracchino, Bito, endless numbers of wonderful cow's milk cheeses that are produced in the high Alpine valleys, in the plains. Cremona is the biggest milk town in Italy. So my mouth waters at the yeah, prospect I know of all it. of this These cheese These are a lot of classic, uh, what I was thinking are Italian, but boy, to eat them in Lombardy makes a lot of sense. And of course, Milan is the big city there. And it it acts like it's the capital of Italy if it's not the capital, but it's certainly the capital of fashion and design where we find Armani and Versace and opera. And opera, La Scala, And uh, Milan has a a great uh, food heritage. Talk a little bit about uh, the aperitivo custom that's so popular there. Milan, we think Campari is from there and, and certainly beautiful cafes are from there. Milan always prided itself on, for every church at Rome, there was a bank in Milan. They like to think they're more hardworking than other Italians. They're not. They work very hard, but most Italians work very hard. And the Milanese also play hard so that after their workday, they'll go out to one of their local bars or cafes and have an aperitivo, have food that might be served by the cafe. And I advise people, don't eat the entire platter of food in front of you, but pick. It goes with the drink. It's not dinner so right. to speak. But yeah. the quality is so high in things like that that you would find little fried risotto balls or you'd find beautiful prosciutto with gorgonzola, combinations that stimulate the palate and mm. make your drink taste better. Well, if you got all these great examples of the ingredients, if you've got the Armani and the Versace and La Scala, uh, you would think the food would be in the, in the evening uh, dining experiences would be equally rich and elegant. Fred, thank you so much for this tour of Italy to four underappreciated regions. We're in Sardinia, we're in Friuli, Venezia, Giulia, La Marche, and last, Lombardy. I'd like to close just with a favorite word of mine, piacere. When I meet somebody, I know to say piacere. That's nice to meet you, I think, when you're just meeting somebody as a polite word. But it's also an important part of your appreciation of Italian cuisine. And when you say to me, piacere, I reply, piacere mio, the pleasure is all mine. The pleasure is about savoring, about enjoyment. It's not hedonism. It's about having your senses activated and alert to what you're doing. So it's not mindlessly putting a drink or food in your mouth. It's pausing to really understand what this is doing to you, where it might be from, and how good you feel. And you feel better when you are focused on food because we're not talking about being fancy or being foodie. We're talking about every mouthful, every sip as a culture. Wow. So when I shake somebody's hand in Italy and I always say piacere, that's nice to meet you, but it's also, in my mind, I'm so thankful to be able to approach your culture in a sensuous way and take a moment and bring a little understanding and get the most out of this beautiful experience. Piacere. Piacere mio. Fred Plotkin's also known for his expertise in opera and classical music and his books Opera 101 and Classical Music 101. Fred hosts conversations with leading people in the arts on the Adagio platform. 
It's live on Friday afternoons at 2 Eastern Time and archived on YouTube as Fred Plotkin on Fridays. Get a taste of some of Europe's heartiest foods from Belgium. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. I will never forget a waiter in Brussels bragging, in Belgium we eat as hearty as the Germans and as fine as the French. The Belgians are famous for their waffles and fries and beer, at least from this American perspective, but they're also respected for their high cuisine, their gastronomy. Right now we're joined by two friends and tour guides from Belgium, Nina Derricks and Ferdinando Mengi, to talk about Belgian taste treats. Ferdi and Nina, thanks for joining us. All right. Here we go. For the traveler, there's all sorts of trendy and, and high cuisine options, but when you think back to your childhood, what was the go-to dish that your mom would serve you? Main dish every day at lunchtime is the main Lunch. meal because we're f- I'm from Farmerstock. Soup. Often pigeon soup because Belgians particularly like pigeon racing. And all the losers went into the soup. <laughs> no, really. In, yeah. in, the, in the farm community? You yeah, yeah. I have had a lot of loser soup, as we call it. <laughs> loser soup? Yeah, loser soup. <laughs> losing pigeon yeah. would end up in the soup at lunch. Yeah. yeah, you wring their neck if they don't win a prize, and then you go in the soup. And there's a lot of goodness in soup. Mainly that's why you had soup. Everything is in there. Mothers are happy. Kids have had soup. Mm. Yeah, there's they'll happiness in soup. Followed by... Potatoes, everyday potatoes, every day. But storage potatoes without any taste. Yeah, yeah they, no. You put them in the winter in your cellar yeah. and then you have them. I don't know what you do to those things. You rehydrate them and then you eat them <laughs> boiled with vegetables and bechamel sauce with a lot yeah. of nutmeg. So you call it storage potatoes. They're just yeah. sort of... They store for the winter. They're just well, filler. They lose their taste. Yeah, boil them. Always unsold. boil them. Always boil, Always boil them. Yeah. Oh, once a week fries, of course. Once a week fries. Okay. Oh, was, fries. was that like a luxury to have them fried or something? Or why, no, why, that why was tradition. tradition. And it was always on the same day. Remember that? Yes, what that's day? right. I think we had fries on Thursdays. <laughs> and all the rest of the week we had potatoes. Well, that potatoes. Was not, yes. So if a, if a child today says, oh, I just had that yesterday, you would kind of go, when I was a kid. When I was a kid. <laughs> you had you potatoes every day and you were thankful. The famous mm-hmm. painting of Van Gogh? Yeah, the potato, potato eaters. Yeah, the potato, potato eaters. That's my family. Yes. That's it. Yeah. A That's bunch it. of humble farm people gathered around a table with one candle Absolutely. and a bowl of potatoes to share. And that's a true story. I mean, it's not that like you just invented, but it really, in mm-hmm. our days, that was the way. And before and that, that was it. Yeah. But you still have a love of potatoes. And I've been to places that cook up the Belgian fries. We call them French fries. What do you yeah, call them? But the French fries is because they cut. The way they cut the potatoes, oh, that's, that's called, f- that's the French cut. That's a French cut. Got nothing yeah. to do with fries. And let's Not get it French. right. We say Flemish fries. Flemish, yeah. It's Belgian invention, though. Don't forget. <laughs> no. Don't ever no. forget. No. French fries are Flemish a fries. Vlaamse frieten. Vlaamse frieten. And yeah. that is literally Flemish fries. Vlaamse frieten. We say Vlaamse frieten met mayonnaise. Now, I have a friend who's a restaurateur in Bruges, and he took me into his kitchen, and he was like evangelical about his Vlaamse frieten, his French fries. He explained how they, I think they, they did twice through the... Fr- they uh, bake them first or cook them or put them in oil, certain temperature, and then they take them out and then they wait until they cool off and then they fry them again on a higher temperature so they become crisp and a little bit And as colorful. a Belgian, do you recognize the difference? Oh, yeah. And you have to have a good dollop of really fatty mayonnaise Ma- on, top on top of that of double it, fried like, fries. And yeah. the best mayonnaise is when you make them yourself. Yes, the first recipe I ever learned at home is how to make mayonnaise. Yeah, yeah. and it's so easy Absolutely. to make and it's so much So what's the trick better. of good mayonnaise then? An egg, a little bit of oil, mustard. a little bit of mustard, that's yes. it. And that's it. And a bit yep. of salt. A little salt, that's yeah. it. And so you, you make mayonnaise. Your, in the your, Netherlands, they put sugar in the mayonnaise. I yeah, mean, they make them is. sweet. We don't know. Yeah. be different probably. No. My so, mother would say, that's not Catholic. <laughs> yeah. Meaning that's not right. Is that right? Oh, yeah. So that's not Catholic. How do you say that in Flemish? 
Dat is niet katholiek. Dat is niet katholiek. Zie je? Well, we would say that's not kosher. That's not kosher. Yeah, that's, that's, like, that's, that's not yeah. Jewish. Yeah. That's not kosher. That's yeah. not Catholic. That's not, not Catholic. Catholic. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so if you're a traveler to this day, you can go to the good place and get a cone of fries. Mm-hmm. And the most, most Americans would go, mayonnaise, I want ketchup. I don't want ketchup. You, you, but you mayonnaise can... is the ones, that's the, the thing you put on there. And we used to get, be able to get them in newspaper. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember yeah. that. But that's now not hygienic. Yeah. Also, um, gray shrimp are popular in Belgium. Nina, can you explain to me what's the uh, enthusiasm for the shrimp? They're very small. They're very tasty. They come from Arnossi. Uh, just yeah. off the coast of Norsi Belgium. shrimp, yeah. mm-hmm. yes. I remember when I was small, my mother every Wednesday goes to the market, buys a kilo of gray shrimp. The evening television is not on. You'd all sit around with my brothers and sisters, mother and father, maybe my grandparents, and we'd all be peeling the shrimp oh, yeah. and talking. And my dad would bring his beer, and it takes you a long time to peel these tiny little shrimp. They're so savory. In Bruges, they have shrimp, fresh-peeled shrimp like that, that you peel yourself, and then you have little shots of lemon gin. It works beautifully, and I do that, actually, with um, lemon gin and shrimp together. And beautiful. that's a beautiful experience, and you can find that in... All over yes. So when I got married to Jamie, the Englishman, <laughs> and we were home and I said, Jamie, we're going to have this kilo of shrimp together with my family just to bond with the family. I went to the local market and the, the vendor said, you're not from here, are you? Which really hurt me. Okay. <laughs> I said, why? He says, shrimp that you can peel. We haven't sold that for decades because you young housewives don't have time to peel shrimp anymore, so we don't. There's no demand for that anymore. Because so you, the peeling the gray shrimp yeah. was sort of a way to be convivial. Yes, that's yeah, right. It was tradition, and that's the, that's when we talked. I've done that in Denmark on small islands in little villages far from the mainstream, where you have a, a table full of shrimp, and together with a good Danish beer, you peel the shrimp, you talk, and you drink the beer. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing because you're busy with something, and then you just talk. It loosens you up. Yeah. It yeah. loosens you up. Yeah. This is travel with Rick Steves. We're talking peeling shrimp in Belgium here with Ferdi and Nina. Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. And Nicole's coming in from Victoria in British Columbia. Hi, Nicole. Hi. I just wanted to say one of the best meals I had in Belgium was moule frites. <laughs> oh, moule. That's the French word for mussels. You know, I all my life, you live in Victoria, you know what it's like. I, I, the pilings on the dock were just filled with these uh, mussels, and I never dreamed of eating them. And then this, the same exact creature is uh, on, the, <laughs> on the finest menus in Belgium. <laughs> just delicious, and also with the mayo that uh, your guests were mentioning before. So let's talk about the mussels in the cuisine, uh, Ferdinando. How do, you, how do you enjoy the mussels in, when you're in Belgium? Oh, we enjoy them very much. I mean, there's a lot of restaurants where you can eat them, and they're all good to eat. But I prefer, I'm a kind of a hobby cook. Mm-hmm. And I love to cook, and I cook it myself. And it's very easy to make. A little bit of onions, a little bit of celery, and that's it. A little bit of white wine. You just steam them for 10 minutes, and mm. they're done. No so salt. that's the, um, the unadulterated, yeah. the, the pure kind of belt. Uh, and, and there's different kinds of mussels. You know, there's different shapes or sizes, I would uh-huh. say. The small, the big, and the jumbo, like we call them. And the, What's I the tastiest? Get, I think the big ones. Big you, ones. You need, you need good big mussels uh-huh. in the shell. And yeah. So typically you'd get, a, you'd get a kilo or something of mussels. Per person. Uh, per person. Yeah, that's, that's about 2.2. 2.2 uh, pounds. Yeah. And a, it comes with a pile of good fries, yeah. uh, Flemish fries. Do you clean your own mussels when oh, you get I them clean from them the market? Myself. I See? clean them myself. That's the most important thing, clean your mussels, because you need to mm-hmm. rinse them, because otherwise if mm-hmm. you have sand in them... Do you rinse you, them in flowery water? No, I, I rinse them. No? The last rinse I would do in milk. This is All when right. they're still alive? 
Well, they're still, they're fresh. Yeah, because yeah. when we mm-hmm. did clams, you would put them in the bucket and they would rinse themselves. By, yeah, by, but we rinse them with water and the last right. one I'd rinse them with milk so they can okay. spit all the... Spit it mother. all out. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. kind of purify them. Yeah, otherwise you eat and you, you, you eat sand and it doesn't come and over. And Nina, well. in a restaurant, how do you enjoy the mussels in Belgium? Uh, in white natural. wine sauce. That's in white, white wine sauce. White wine sauce. Yeah. That's I usually how I go for um, a natural. Natural. Yeah. Natural or white wine sauce. I don't want anything else with mussels. No, me neither. Because yeah. otherwise you lose the taste of the mussels. Less is the more. more you put in, less is better. You're yeah. right. Nicole, is this bringing back memories when you were in Belgium? Oh, yes. Makes me want to go back. Where, did you, <laughs> where do you remember eating mussels in Belgium? On the main square? Yes. <laughs> I love sitting on the main square there and having my mussels and looking out at the greatest square in Europe, La Grande Place. La Grande Place. Nina. Nicole, there's um, another type of mussels we have from Brussels. Mussels from Brussels is our name for the actor Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> well, you know Jean, you know Jean-Claude Van Damme, the actor. I mean, he plays in all those action movies. Okay, yeah. so he's muscles from Brussels. Martial yeah. arts. Yeah. Nicole, thanks for your call. Thank you. Enjoy your mussels in Brussels. <laughs> this is Travel Thank with you. Rick Steves. We're talking mussels in Brussels and Belgian cuisine. We Americans always know about Brussels sprouts. And um, I realize that they've been cultivated in Belgium for a long time. But I, I was wondering, we call them Brussels sprouts. Do you call them Brussels sprouts? No, we call them spruite. We just call them sprouts. Never, sprouts. I think they originated in the Brussels yes, area. Yes, that's right. Likely, yeah. uh, I think yes. in St. Catalina, Wavre. Yes, think. that's was, right. There's a little place outside of Brussels. Okay. Yeah. And they call Brussels, but we call them spruite. Outside of Belgium? Yeah. Logically? Brussels Nobody calls sprouts. them Brussels sprouts. Nobody oh, okay. Does. Is that part of your cuisine? Do people eat them very much? Well, as a kid, we never liked them. I don't know about we you. We were force-fed them. Well, of course, you, same thing was, here. Some the, things are the same all over the world. You, yes. you, there was no choice. If, if that was served, you eat it. For yes, you cannot yeah. leave the table of bacon. Worse than it. spinach, yeah? <laughs> yeah, worse than spinach. Worse than spinach. Andives. Isn't that a Belgian andives? Yes. Andives, they say, but we call them andive. We never say Belgian or I never called them andive. We called them witloof. Yeah, white ah, leaves, the white, white leaves. leaves. Yes. You mean the endive, the white one? Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Yeah. White oh, yeah. leaves. The French call them the chicon. The chicon, and, and we call them loaf. Yeah. When I was seven years old, we had the World's Fair here in Seattle, and that was Seattle's coming out party where we recognized there's a big world out here. And <laughs> my most vivid memory in 1962 at the Seattle's World Fair, wow. my grandfather took me to the most expensive dessert at the fair, and it was a Belgian waffle. Oh, wow. It was a waffle with strawberries and whipped cream. And that is an exciting part of travel to Belgium now, uh, especially if you have that kind of a memory of a Belgian waffle. Yeah, the waffle. that waffle was called Brussels waffle because they still call them that way. Brussels waffle is a waffle with fruit and whipped cream, right? And sometimes you have a Brussels waffle supreme with a bowl of ice cream. A supreme comes supreme. with ice cream. Yeah, yeah. And Monique's calling in from uh, West Newbury in Massachusetts. Monique, have you had some waffle memories in Belgium? Yes, I have. The waffles there were so different from the ones that I was used to in the U.S. They were just crispy, and they had a, a sweetness to them that was so different. You didn't even need any toppings on them. Nope, right. And when mm-hmm. I came home, I, I looked into trying to make them that way at home, and I found um, that the recipe, it seemed like it was made out of a yeast risen dough rather than just a, a batter that we usually use at home. And they had little pearls of sugar in them, and I think that was what made all the difference. Is that what a Liège-style waffle yeah. is? Because I've noticed that it's a different texture. And when you're on the street and you're going for the, to the waffle sure. stand, you have options. Nina, what are the options? I think the Liège waffle, that is the pearl sugar waffle. It's thicker. It's, much, it's, it's chewier. 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 Yeah. What they yes. do is that when they bake them, mm-hmm. and they put a little bit of sugar on top, so the sugar caramelizes. Oh, yes. oh, and that's, that's why it. you have the gouffre de Liège. 
the gouffe de Liège, yeah. the French way of saying yeah. Uh, yeah. the waffle the, of Liège. Liège, yeah. And Liège is a town in Wallons. Well, so that's yeah. a French-speaking town. French speaking yes. Belgium. Yes. Yeah. Monique, what other taste treats do you remember from your time in Belgium? Another thing that I had there was water zooey. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But water zooey. Yes. Bel- uh, it's a stew, and it traditionally I think has fish, but the version I had was chicken with potatoes and leeks. And it was so delicious that I went back to the same restaurant the next night and had the same thing again. <laughs> wow. And I tried making that at home as well, and that I had pretty good success making. Um, but I would love to try try the fish version sometime when I go back. Now, that sounds like a traditional soup or stew that you might have been Water Zoe is from the city of Ghent. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Gentse Water Zoe. Don't you live in Ghent? No, Genk. Genk. Oh, yeah, there's two. It's about Genk 100 miles in yeah. difference. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gentse water zooi, it's a, it's a famous dish. If it's made good correctly, it's it's a delish, ah. delish to eat. It's a meal soup. It's a meal soup. It's a meal it's got chicken, soup. potatoes, leeks. A little bit of like a leeks, leeks. a little thicker hmm. uh, broth in there, but it's it's yummy. Is it water zooi? Water zooi. Actually, what it means is mess of water. A mess of water. Water oh. is water. Water yeah. is water. Zooi means a mess, making a mess out of water. I love this. Um, or zooien, from the verb zooien, that means to boil, to boil, to boil water. Also. And so then you just bo- chuck things you just in. Chuck stuff yeah. in. So to, it's boil, a to boil a big mess. Sounds like a good peasant's, a peasant's <laughs> yeah. dish in, from Flanders. Absolutely. And then you can uh, have your water zooi, your mess of boiled water with stuff thrown in, and <laughs> take a little walk and drop by a, a, a waffle stand and, and have a nice Absolutely. dessert, a That's Belgian waffle. 5,000 calories, right? There. I think every. <laughs> Family, every family has a waffle machine, don't they? Oh, I yeah, it's not something that you buy from stands all the but, time. But Nina, you remember as a kid baking waffles? Yeah, always. I mean, every week yeah. we were baking, making yeah. waffles. Sundays. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was the treat. I bought a if, big box and if put If you in kids there. are good, we're going to make some waffles. Yeah, I gave a waffle. All right. Yeah. Monique, thanks for your call. Thank you. And happy eating next time you're in Belgium. The culinary memories and treats of Belgium are courtesy of Belgian-born tour guides Ferdi Mengi and Nina Derricks. Nina and her husband, Jamie, have also operated a gourmet tour company out of their home base in Tuscany for many years. You can find out more about our guests in each week's show notes. That's at ricksteves.com slash radio. We've done a lot of eating here in the last few minutes. I just feel hungry. like it's, I'm getting hungry, too. <laughs> and uh, we're going to cap it off with uh, something that is exquisite and, and famous in Belgium, and it's the chocolates. And I was really struck by the passion for chocolate. There's little mom-and-pop chocolatiers. They pride themselves in not putting wax in the chocolate, I guess, that helps it survive the heat. So if it's too hot, they even close down. And people buy their chocolate thinking it needs to be fresh. Today's chocolate, believe it or not. What is it with the passion for chocolate in Belgium, Ferdi? Well, chocolate, I mean, me growing up as a kid and Nina as well, we know that chocolate was something that was, you know, we had chocolate if it was possible to get it. It was not always there because Mm -hmm. chocolate was not that cheap to buy. But I remember... Those cheaper chocolate bars, but the, remember the one with the cow on there? It was like a very flat, very thin, yeah. mm-hmm. and it cost like you know two cents for a bar, and that right. was it was of course cheap. But so we grew up with chocolate, and and chocolate, man, we have so many good chocolate cheese. Well, now you have the line of chocolate chocolate shops. You go down even right in the main square in Brussels, you got Leonidas, you've got Godiva, Godiva yeah. and uh, three or four others. Oh yeah, and people have their favorites. Nina, do you have a favorite uh, chocolate in Belgium? Oh my God, I love I love Lindt chocolate, but that's Swiss. That's Swiss. Côte d'Or. Côte d'Or is very good. Côte d'Or is one of my favorite. Yeah, I like just very very dark chocolate. Very dark. Yeah, me too. Dark. Very dark chocolate. And it's pretty good for you, I heard, a dark chocolate, if you eat a little piece, not a, not a kilo of right. it. What's the difference? You, you encounter the word praline and truffle when you're looking at chocolates. Do you know the difference? 
A praline is made out of chocolate, or it's a full chocolate, or it's a filled one. Truffles is made actually of a mousse. It's softer. Okay. A truffle is way softer, and it has a shape of a truffle. Is you know that right? Yeah. The mushroom, it has right? cream in. Yeah, and, and it's got, it depends, it's got okay. praline cream and butter. Cream and butter. And, and a praline is a filled one. A maybe. filled it's a stuffed chocolate. chocolate. Stuffed, stuffed chocolate, stuffed chocolate, chocolate yeah. yeah. Nina and Ferdi, it's so fun just talking about eating because that's part of travel for anybody. And when you're, if you have a guest in Belgium and you want to take them out to a favorite meal, let's just close with your, what you would order for your guests so they could really enjoy the, the cuisine of Belgium. Well, I would first ask him what they're up for. I mean, mm-hmm. not everybody likes mussels or not everybody likes right. a Belgian stew or something. And there's right. so many dishes. Don't forget, and we haven't mentioned it, that Belgian cuisine is in the top five of the world. Is that right? So there is a, we've been talking about low cuisine mostly, yeah, memories but, from our childhoods, but, but the high cuisine. Yeah, that's the high cuisine. But what's coming back now is the low cuisine, the ones we grew up with. There's more and more restaurants where they serve potatoes and vegetables with okay. bacon or sausage, which was a farmer's dish. Rabbit. Rabbit. Mm-hmm. And that's coming back slowly and more and more people looking for those things. And Belgium is a perfect country. Can you find have... loser soup? <laughs> pigeon soup, yes. Pigeon soup, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yes. We love pigeon pigeons. stews, absolutely. Right. They're back yeah. the losers. So yeah. it depends on the on the palate of the guests you have, you know. And we can we haven't even talked about it, but the beer is part of the cuisine. If you go to a fine wine shop in Paris, you've got French wine, but the beer will be Belgian. Mm-hmm. Europeans all think of Belgian. We beers, cook with beer, yeah. And our stews, beer. absolutely. And more yes. and more people are drinking beer with their fancy dinners ah. or meals rather than wine. That's just kicked in, hasn't that's it? That's the latest fashion. That's just kicked in the last fashion. couple of years. Yes. That, and that beer with cheese. Beer. Yeah. beer with cheese. Combine right. that. And even yes. beer with chocolate. It's a really good combination. It depends what beer you're mm. drinking, but it's it's a good... Uh, so in the old days, beer was kind of considered food almost, and uh, now Yes, beer it was is, uh, known as pain liquide, liquid, liquid bread. bread. Liquid bread. Yes. And today, it has become more refined, and it's uh, part of the whole gastronomy. But it's Belgium. still classified as food, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so Remember therefore, you can drink it when you're 16, whereas booze, wait till you're 18. Was oh, that right? So, yes. so you have to be mm-hmm. older to have a, a cocktail. Yes. But beer goes in a different category. Mm-hmm. Like we said yes. before, when our grandfather or our father said, well, one beer is worth two sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the same not, value. Uh, yes. You know, the same... Uh, same nutritional value. Yeah, liquid, liquid bread. Liquid Sounds bread. like a fun yes. grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> so you yes. can drink a lot of bread. All right. Yeah. Hey, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been celebrating Belgian cuisine here with two wonderful guides, Ferdinando Menke and Nina Derricks. Ferdi and Nina, thanks so much. And uh, I'm heading back to Belgium to uh, sample some of this hey. edible culture. Call me if you dare. All right. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Casmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find more at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. The Rick Steves Guidebook to Italy has long been America's best-selling guidebook to any destination in Europe. We've just updated it, and it's in its 27th edition, and it's ready and raring to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Pick up a copy at your favorite bookseller or at ricksteves.com.